0: Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy! Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyber Labs, and this is Dave Cruz. And today I'm in person with Alex Kubitschek. And Alex is the CEO of Understory, which has developed its own distributed weather stations to measure weather conditions on the ground on a granular level, which Alex can tell you a lot more about it and probably in better fashion. So, and these weather stations can tell you details about wind and hail and lots of other weather data. So it's quite cool. And of course, insurance companies are quite interested in this data. So I'm excited to hear more about Alex's background and about Understory. And it's quite a great story. Yeah, I, I had to put that in there. So thanks, Alex, for uh, joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So yeah, so Understory is located in Madison, so I'm lucky enough to be sitting here with Alex. And uh, so first, before we get into Understory, can you tell us a little bit about your background before the world of Understory?
1: Yeah, so um, in 2012, I was uh, studying something called cloud microphysics, which is the study of how... Um, particles interact with each other inside a thunderstorm and various um, processes by which um, you know particles grow or shrink. Hmm. And what we were looking at was specifically uh, hail formation and how that could be better understood so that we can better uh, predict thunderstorms. So understanding how hail forms on the micro level and bringing that to more of the macro level so we can better predict uh, when a thunderstorm is going to intensify, uh, so we created some really interesting algorithms as as part of my research at um, UW Madison, and that allowed us to you know find some really interesting things. We won some awards for um, you know the science that was going into that. But when we looked at being able to take that to the real world, there was really no data set out there that could validate what we were actually seeing. So everything that we we're doing was very Uh, interesting and made sense from a a scientific level, but there was no real world data to back up that understanding. And so that helped me understand that there was a huge hole in data uh, that needed to be filled. And that's why uh, I created understory, was to actually fill that that hole. And really it's out of my own selfish uh, (laughs) need for uh, better weather data. But, and kind of why weather data is so broken is you have this great data set from satellite and radar and it um, shows what's happening in the sky at a really high resolution but that what's happening in the sky doesn't always translate to Mm -hmm. what's happening on the ground where people and businesses are so uh, you'll constantly curse the weatherman for x y or z but you know it's it's really you know the the weatherman can only be as good as their their tools and you know forecasts have come a really long way uh, in the past decade but you know having a better granular understanding of weather data by having that understanding at the ground uh, will propel it even further.
0: Interesting. All right. So I'm curious how hail is made, but that's probably another podcast. Uh, I'm just look at it on the internet, but um, maybe not on your level. But um, so, all right. So, yeah, tell us a little bit about like when you started um, you know what did you first work on you know trying to get this the weather stations built or yeah kind of just tell us the story of how you started and who you started with and I can ask these questions again but <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: yeah um, so um, when we uh, first uh, decided on the concept for what understory was um, the, the main idea was to figure out a way to um, get more granular weather measurements and the first idea that we had was to create a crowdsourced uh weather understanding so creating a essentially a consumer product that would uh people would buy from their backyards and that would that would increase the the granular of weather uh data and so that was when both myself and my co-founder were still at uh UW Madison and so we put that through some business planning competitions which we lost uh, really poor, really badly. <laughs> really? Um, but you're probably the most successful out of all of those now. But <laughs> <laughs> No, there's been a lot of great companies that have come out of the, the business plan competitions, that's like Eat yeah. uh, uh, e Street, for oh, example, yeah. e Street, is, that's a, right. is a huge success story. But yeah, um, so... When we were doing that, um, that allowed us to get connected with Generator, um, and Generator is uh, an accelerator in Wisconsin that, you know, helps companies go from more of a conceptual stage and helps them understand their business model and eventually get funding. Uh, and so we were part of their um, inaugural class in, in 2012, so they helped us say, okay, does crowdsource weather data really makes sense from a component perspective. And what we found by kind of digging into the market is that there's not a lot of people that actually wanna buy weather stations. There's a lot of people that want weather data, but no one wants to deal with the hardware. And so that switched us from being a B2C company to a B2B company where we would uh, own and operate those networks ourselves. And so that's what you know helped us understand, okay, uh, you know we need to understand you know, who is most impacted by that. And so we went through that process and understood that weather impacts everyone. So there's uh, some degree of use for our data in almost every market, Uh, but there are some low hanging fruit specifically in the insurance market where uh, we can understand our hail data and how it has an impact on buildings and use that for different types of claims processes. Uh, And that's really important because right now insurance companies, they have really a data blind spot when it comes to knowing their customers have any type of damage and so they wait for their customers to call them and that's you know that's just been how or that's how it's been for that entire time and what we're doing is we're flipping that on its head where the insurance companies they can know who has damage and they can reach out proactively making that claims process move a lot faster getting that claim uh, closed quicker and that ultimately translates to money saved for the insurance company by moving faster, Uh, but then it also creates this great customer experience where, you know, I'm sure you filed a claim, it's not fun, (laughs) Um, and if you could just have that completely taken out of your hands, you know, that's something that's really interesting. And what we found by doing that is we reduce the overall cost of a storm to an insurance carrier by about 10 to 15%, uh, which is pretty uh, incredible from that end.
0: And, um, like all costs, like including like replacing all the roofs, like yep. really, how, how do you, it's a big cost savings, just like efficiency or it's,
1: like, it's a lot of efficiency you know. and it's a lot of, uh, understanding, um, you know, paying the, the right claims mm-hmm. at the right time, which okay. is, which is a big part of that. So you also have this really big problem where you have these bad acting contractors mm-hmm. that come in after a storm and are replacing roofs that don't need to be replaced. And uh, you, as the homeowner, you're stuck in the middle because you have no idea if you have damage or not. Yep. This person that you look to see, the expert, is telling you that you do. And they're making you pay a deductible that you don't need to. And your rates are probably going to go up by 20 30% by doing that. And so, uh, essentially, if the insurance company can get in between that and say, hey, you actually don't need a roof um and this is going to save you money in the long term by not actually getting it replaced you know that ends up being beneficial okay, to sure. everyone
0: and, and now we're getting into the details we'll, we'll step back in a second but now i'm curious about this so like because uh, we just we're getting our roof replaced in two weeks from a, a hail storm so you know does hail differ that much from like block to block because like how uh we're getting into details but yeah, how many sensors would you put up so like you know if you had a sensor that covered like you know a quarter square mile is that enough to like? Is that a small enough grid, I guess, to for Yeah, so we yeah. put
1: sensors every two miles okay, all right. inside a city. Okay. Um, and that allows us to get an understanding of essentially the structure of the storm. And so uh, okay. it, it can vary on the block yeah, block level, yeah. but it really, that only happens on the very edges of the storm. Majority of the time, it doesn't really? change that dramatically. You'll have a lot of anecdotes from people saying, oh, you know, my neighbor has hail damage, yeah, exactly. but then like right. five houses over. Um, you know they also have hail damage, but everyone in between doesn't have right, any yeah. and a lot of that 's mostly due to construction so like different houses yeah. applied with different types of um, hail and how it 's actually coming in will have different types of damage so it 's not only just the the weather that has pro- or that causes the damage it 's how old the roof is, how the house is facing it, and what it 's made out of gotcha. uh, which really have a, a really big impact on that. Um, but uh, kind of thinking about just how we install those sensors is so we put them every two miles inside a city Uh, so for example our largest network is the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex where we have about 150 sensors and so that allows Mm -hmm. us to map to about 2.3 million homes in that area uh, because we can see exactly how Uh, those storms come through. And so each sensor is measuring it about 50,000 times a second. So it's understanding the momentum of the hail, the angle of impact, as well as the hail size distribution. And so by actually seeing that um, in a time series as it's going over a city, we can map that to the entire area. So, for example, on May 8th in Denver, uh, we recorded a $1.4 billion hailstorm, which uh, was the largest in Colorado history. Uh, but maybe the second largest hailstorm that the U.S. has seen Um, and that's for home and auto and what's interesting about that is so we have 50 sensors live in Denver Uh, about 40 of them experienced uh, that hailstorm and we captured directly 4200 hailstones and so that's really interesting from uh, a concept of being able to measure the hail directly but then we can take that information and then map it to the rest of the storm where we could understand that there was 1.6 trillion hailstones that fell Ugh. during the course of the storm. <laughs> and we can, based on where you're looking um, from um, you know, property perspective, you can see, okay, what does the distribution of hailstones look like in this area, what, where was the hail coming from, and what were the largest hailstones, and what, what does that damage actually mean? Wow. And So by understanding that, you can take that data and see you know, how should I prioritize which claims are getting paid first, how should I um, send out my claims adjusters? So do I send um, you know, someone who's straight out of college and you know, giving him or her like a, a surefire win, or do I send the, the skilled claims adjuster out to an area that has kind of yeah. something that's more happening on the, on the fringe so they can have a better understanding of that?
0: Wow. Do you remember how large some of the hail got?
1: Uh, our largest hailstone that we measured was about two and a half inches.
0: No way. So wow. Yeah, so that's about baseball size hail. Oh, oh my goodness, that'd knock you out? wow all right or I kill you i guess I'd probably kill you <laughs> yeah. all right luckily i don't think anyone was hit directly right. by no, it's good by a baseball size hailstone um all right so that was a really good uh, yeah description of what you guys do and how you do it and uh, so but take us back to the, the beginning because I, I think it's always tricky like, there's lots of really interesting technologies out there that are very cool can do a lot of cool things but it's always hard to validate like a use case or i guess find the market fit so uh, how did you guys so you probably at some point were like oh it's not too crowdsourcing let's go talk to an insurance company mm-hmm. and but then that's they're like oh this would be really useful but how do you actually like get the data to show it and validate it? so an insurance company's like oh this is what we need like how did that process kind of uh happen
1: yeah so yeah. it's um the insure tech uh market has kind of grown over the yeah. past yeah. uh three years in leaps and bounds so there's a lot more uh, Companies that want to utilize technology, but yeah, at the beginning, uh, it was really hard. Uh, so <laughs> when we were first, when we first kind of created the uh, the company, and we tried to raise money in Wisconsin. Everyone told us what a terrible idea it was, really? and like yeah. so, uh, you know, the Wisconsin is this? This is 2012, uh, twenty twelve, yeah. Okay. Uh, and so you know, we're trying to raise money from Wisconsin investors, but they're yeah. just far too conservative to take this kind of uh, mental leap that having a weather data resource in an area could be useful or even possible, like yeah. just even the technology, like, there's no way you can actually build this. So <laughs> not even from like a business model perspective where they upset, which they were also had problems with that, but it was the, you know, the business model and the technology. Yeah. So we actually moved from Wisconsin to the East Coast and joined a hardware accelerator program mm-hmm. called Bolt and that they helped us take our prototype devices to something that could be manufactured, but at the same time helped us understand uh, exactly how to make the company into a venture backable business. So, not only is it just you know tackling insurance, but it's how can we create a company that um, has something that will ultimately transform into a billion dollar or multi billion dollar company. And that was a big part of being able to raise our first uh, series okay. seed round, which was about 2.1 million from uh, True Ventures, was understanding uh, some general ideas about how the weather data can be applied to different businesses and the fact that, okay, so there is, I just talked about that example in insurance, that the hail um, isn't really known by the insurance companies and how that's actually impacting their policyholders. They don't know that until, you know, weeks after the fact. And, um, you know, so that's a really interesting, you know, first step because we can deploy networks inside a city, Uh, and create value instantaneously, but then there's this whole nother vertical that we can go into um, called agriculture because whether it is incredibly important to agriculture, and so as we expand out our networks, that creates a a new market for us because you need more sensors in an area to be able to capture the entirety of the agriculture market. And uh, there's a lot of um, uses and utilities and airlines and transportation and uh, self-driving cars, being able to input weather data into it. So kind of crafting that entire story and understanding, okay, here's how big this can get, and this is why we're poised to actually get this done. Um, and so that that's really how we were able to kind of get started. And the insurance companies um, came in really after we deployed the networks because the really important point of our business model is that we own and operate the networks. Um, the the yeah. carriers aren't purchasing those networks, and so really, we try to make the weather data invisible to the insurance companies, so they can just see, okay, here's the decisions, and here's the damage, uh, that's going to come to that, and how am I going to make better decisions based on knowing what damage it is. So,
0: so, so when True Ventures invested, you really didn't have, like, in, let's say, in, validation by insurance companies at that point necessarily. We had
1: conceptual, conceptual validation, but, but they, yeah.
0: yeah, So they kind of took a little gamble that uh, this is going to work out, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to find Wisconsin investors <laughs> to find I could make that leap. But uh
1: well, yeah, and it's yeah, it's uh <laughs> kind of an interesting, you know, um, change in perspective, you know, c- because the what a lot of really good investors um, can do is that when they look at a company um, that has like some type of technological aspect, they just assume that the technology is going to work um, yeah. because yeah. that's all very solvable. And then so the really big piece of it is, you know, does this business model make sense but at the same time even if it's still largely unproven that the next thing you, you think about is like can this team you know figure yeah. out if it doesn't and then change to a business model yeah. that works yeah. and really that's the biggest component of raising money at the seed stage is yeah. does the team or is the team capable of you know moving quickly constantly iterating on their business model and adapting it to uh you know what market challenges are going to come into play because you know when we raised our, our series seed we um you know, we didn't have nearly as much of fleshed out as we do now. But yeah, as we've yeah. you know been in the market and understood kind of how we can really have a significant impact on losses for P and C carriers, we found that that you know we can build build a much better business case on top of that.
0: All right, and so uh, more uh, overview on Understory. How much you've raised a, a good chunk of money? How much money you raised, and uh, what locations are you currently in? You mentioned. Uh, Dallas and Denver.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, yeah. Are you? In, in, yeah. Where else are you? If it, or where else you want to go? But yeah, how much money have you raised?
1: Yeah. So we've raised um, about ten million dollars to yeah. date. Uh, so that was, uh, like I said, our Series Seed was led by True Ventures, and then our Series A was led by Forty Four Ninety. And Forty Four Ninety was a big mm-hmm. reason of why we moved the company back, back. to. Okay. Uh, Wisconsin because you know we saw that there was a change in kind of how people were thinking about businesses yeah. in Wisconsin over a short period of time and that's due to you yeah. know a lot of people working really hard to make that uh, yeah. possible to have people kind of not think about uh, startups in the way they, they had five years ago but you know think about them more so kind of with that, that coastal mentality yeah. about you know how can we build this really awesome thing and how can we find the best possible people to run that and so Um, so that's why we're able to move our, um, HQ to Madison. I mean, we still have an an office in Boston and then we have uh, remote workers across the US. Um, but that's,
0: um, how many employees do you have?
1: We have 14. 14. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And 400 weather station employees.
0: 400? weather? What what do you mean by that?
1: Oh, we have 400 weather weather stations. stations.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right. They're doing all the work. Right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, that's good. Yeah, so we're deployed in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, Denver, St. Louis, Kansas City, and Houston. Uh, and we're doing some pilots uh, in Hawaii with one of our major investors that came into the Series A, Monsanto, to uh, better understand how can we uh, look at irrigation, planting time, harvesting time, and predict uh, seed production in certain areas with the goal of that taking that and understanding, okay, can we have this worldwide dashboard of understanding how weather impacts the logistics of the seed production company. Interesting.
0: Wow, that's a lot of places. And uh, how how many cities do you want to be in in the next, like, three to five years? So
1: by the 2020 storm season, we'll be in about 70, 75 cities. Um, And why that number is important is because that represents about 50% of the average annual loss from severe convective storms. So that provides us to have a direct impact on 50% of the total losses that come from um, thunderstorms essentially, um, and it gets us close to about 100% of the losses that come from catastrophes because we'll be in all the major cities that get hit by these storms. And you, know, you really only have a major catastrophe when um, you, know, you have a large thunderstorm hit a okay. populated area with a lot of assets.
0: Um, and can you get, get that far with our current level of funding?
1: Uh, we that's are, yeah, <laughs>
0: that's very quick.
1: So what's really great about our, our weather yeah. sensors, and I didn't talk about how they actually work is yeah, so that, we don't hear that for they, sure, you yeah. know, they, they use, um, something that we call atmospheric force, which allows us to better understand, um, how the, the wind and hail and rain actually impact it, um, to actually understand how big that hail is, what's the angle of impact, what's the gust of wind, and then what does that, that rainfall look like? And so since we're using a force rather than any type of like spinning cup that you may have seen with an anemometer yeah, yeah. Or, or some type of propeller, there's no moving parts. And the new, no moving parts is really important because one, that helps it be very cost-effective to build the sensors, but at the same time, they last for about five to seven years out in the field, which when compared to this current state-of-the-art for ground sensors, they have to be calibrated or replaced yeah. every six months, oh, wow. and so wow. that 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 becomes a really big logistical issue. And so when we're looking at those seventy seventy five cities, that's only forty five hundred weather sensors for us. And for us to be able to deploy that, it's actually not a lot of capital no, okay. for a small startup.
0: Interesting. Oh, that's awesome. And and you you're fairly lean and mean, which is nice. I mean, you're doing a lot with fourteen people, which is impre- Which is, which is what we have to, ideally you have to do. Um. All right. So yeah, let's. Um, since you, since you mentioned it, let's, let's talk about how the sensors work. Cause, uh, yeah, it's pretty, pretty interesting. Um, that's a, a solid sphere metal ball and there's no sensors in the ball, but I wish we had a picture. We'll try to put a picture up on the podcast, but yeah. Can you tell us how it works?
1: Yeah. So, um, whenever anything impacts the, the ball, um, that allows us to, Uh, We measure that about 50,000 times a second and then we do something called discrete signal processing on that force signature. So uh, wind gust is going to look different from the pitter-patter rain from a hailstone strike. And so when that's all happening all at the same time in the middle of a thunderstorm, Uh, our algorithms are able to pull those different signals apart and turn them into uh, data that we can use to understand the damage uh, to the homes in the area. It also measures temperature, pressure, and humidity uh, as well as solar but the the core part of the weather station that makes it uh, truly unique is the fact that it can be um, remotely updated. So as mm-hmm. the devices are out in the field, we can um, go into the weather station, change how it's behaving um, and upgrade the firmware. And so by using that um, atmospheric force principle, we can actually use that and create new measurements. So for example, uh, when we were looking at agriculture, when we started deploying these on fields, uh, we found that we can measure something called evapotranspiration, which essentially is how much moisture is coming off the plants. And that's a direct understanding of how much moisture you need to replace by irrigation. Uh, and we just found that, you know, by having those measurements out there that that correlated really well. And so we're able to upgrade the sensors without changing any of the hardware or doing anything, but adding that new type of measurement uh, remotely. And so that's been really important because we're deploying um, this hardware, even though we've got it really cost-effective, it still is, You know, at some point there's capital that has to go into getting them out there and so making them as robust as possible so that over five years that hardware doesn't become obsolete and the fact that we can constantly upgrade them is something that's really exciting. And so when we deploy these devices, we deploy them on something that's called a a non-penetrating roof mount, which means that that device Um, isn't causing any alterations to the building that we're putting it Uh on. And it's also powered uh, by solar and it communicates over cellular so there's no wires. So that's really important to us is because when we go into a city like Dallas and we're deploying 150 of these we have to work with schools, businesses, churches, golf courses, um, pretty much anyone that um, you know wants to have that, that weather data and really fits into where we want to deploy a weather station making that process as easy as possible so that we can deploy those pretty quickly.
0: So you, you give access to the school, you give schools access to their own data? Mm-hmm. They have their own like little portal they can... Uh, yep, they, they have their own nice.
1: portal, they can access all the data from Come everywhere else, and then, them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, then they can use it in their curriculum, so.
0: Oh, cool. And, and for a future product development, is there anything that you, where you want to take it? Um, you know, make, yeah. I mean, I, of course, want to keep improving your algorithms, so that's like a constant, forever thing. But uh, anything other type of hardware, or do you want to like make a, a smaller type of product for like more infill, or what, what do you want to? Uh,
1: I mean, our our goal right now is making the hardware as uh, cost effective as possible, okay. and then right. adding on new types of measurements that we say okay. might have some type of market impact. Uh, so we're we're doing some research on that. But okay. really, the main point is to uh, gear the weather stations up so they can be even more cost-effective to deploy so that when we deploy all those um, 70, 75 cities over the next few years, that that's extremely cost-effective, uh, which uh, we're, we're almost there. So that's that's really exciting. And then uh, at the same time, we are making the, the sensors uh, communication agnostic. And what that means is that we'll be able to deploy them in remote areas internationally. So, you know, the U.S., I've been talking about how the weather data is so bad, but the U.S. actually has the best weather data Mm -hmm. in the world, and what we're trying to do is really create a worldwide network of sensors that will provide uh, the ability for us to better understand weather and create a lot of value out of that to improve the lives of people and businesses.
0: Interesting, okay. Um, Let's see, so many questions, and I know we only have so much time, but... uh, um... Yeah, I mean, I, I'm curious, uh, one more thing on the product is like, what were some of your, what was some of the hardest parts with the, the building the product? Um, yeah, I'll leave it there.
1: I mean, again, it's, uh, it was all stuff that no one's really done before. So okay. we were inventing uh, a lot of different <laughs> things all at the same time. Um, and a lot of things is, uh, just to give an example is, when we built the the RAIN capability on the sensor, um we're competing against something called a tipping rain bucket. So this is a mechanical device that um, essentially basically is like a teaspoon inside a bucket. And when the teaspoon gets filled up and uh, it empties itself out and you essentially count how many times that teaspoon gets emptied out and that's how you measure rain. And so if you think about it, you, you pour water in this teaspoon and it helps you measure the volume of that, but you can't just pour water on top of our weather station because it's, you'll know, just see that as a <laughs> cup of water. Yeah. And so we had to basically design a way to uh, be able to simulate any amount of rain with any amount of droplet distribution anywhere in the world to be able to understand how we're going to actually build that, that type of algorithm. And so that's something that's been uh, pretty exciting there. But we're you know utilizing research from the 1970s that are been pulling it into our hardware, um, so that we can uh, measure the weather data as accurately uh, for the, the most cost-effective, um, or in the most cost-effective way that we can. Okay.
0: And uh, you guys won't be able to see it, so that's too bad for you. But I saw their lab, and they have this like, huge, very tall shower that simulates rain and conditions, and uh, that they develop from scratch, which is it's a pretty big engineering feat. So it's it's pretty uh pretty cool. Um, I guess you could just tell briefly about that. It is pretty interesting how if if it if it's public knowledge. Oh, yeah, right, we, I mean, right, we yeah, you can no, just kind I mean, of tell. Yeah,
1: yeah. So the uh, so that that's really important because it, it essentially allows us to uh, simulate the the droplet distribution of rain by accelerating water uh, through a shaft, so that we can understand exactly uh, how much rain is impacting the sensor. And so why this is important is that. How we measure rain is it's based on the size distribution of the droplets, which means when you look at rain, you know there's going to be some large drops, some medium drops, and small drops. Uh, but depending on where you are in the world, what the climate is, and what type of rain is actually occurring. So if that's a hurricane or a, a thunderstorm, or just kind of a, a normal rainy day, you know that droplet distribution changes pretty dramatically, and so we needed to be able to simulate that droplet distribution for rain for any point on the planet so that our sensors could uh, accurately capture the rainfall amounts mm. by knowing what the the distribution of the sizes of drops are
0: oh, that's cool um all right and we now i have some more uh, business questions so as as ceo you know what do you find is one of, one of the hardest parts of being a ceo being a Fairly optimistic, even though not everything's always optimistic, or what's there? <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, it's always, I mean, the main things that a CEO needs to do is yeah. one, keep money in the bank, yep. and two, um, you know, hire the best possible people, and then the third thing is keep the vision for the company. And so, and like Fred you know, Wilson. Right.
0: Fred Wilson. <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs>
1: but yeah, um, but the. But balancing all those different things with kind of understanding exactly, um, you know, how to prioritize your time is is really important. But yeah, every single day there's a a new type of fire that you've never seen before. (laughs) And so constantly, um, you know, I was talking to someone that's just starting their business and they're like, I can't believe how steep the learning curve is. And I said, it doesn't stop being steep. (laughs) So it's, uh, you know, you're constantly learning and constantly trying to prioritize your time to be as effective as possible. And I think that's, that balancing act is, is, incredibly, um, you know, challenging but rewarding at the same time.
0: What, what advice would you give to a new CEO? Just stay flexible, be hungry to learn. and Yeah, yeah. stay flexible, yeah.
1: always keep an eye out for new opportunities, and, and always okay. try to prioritize your time the best way possible, and you're gonna screw it up somehow, so um, just <laughs> no, be ready to, um, you know, recover from mistakes, and learn from them, and continue to iterate on, you know, just how you're thinking about everything.
0: And that uh, was, was there ever a time where I mean yeah, of course still could, but you guys are doing seems like quite well. Um, where you thought you might fail or might not get enough money to keep going, or has there been times like that?
1: yeah, I mean yeah. It, as, a, as a startup there's like constant <laughs> constant <laughs> failure points that yeah. you just have to you know always figure out new solutions for so, uh, which makes it not boring yeah. uh, which is always good. Do you, do but, you have
0: one that you can, remember you can share if you don't that's okay, but uh, I mean try to pick one out, but.
1: There's, there's, there's several points where you're always like, um, you know, what do I need to do to, um, make payroll and how can we, you know, be effective at that? But I mean, uh, that's a great thing about, you know, having great investors is that you, when you even get close to that point and you're communicating that with them, you know, they're able to help you understand exactly how you can, uh, you know, alter your, your business plan or even alter, you know, your, your execution yeah. of that to make sure that those those points, you know, aren't as um, intense, you know, you're able yeah. to, you know, anticipate them and then move on from them rather quickly and then accelerate the
0: moment you, you get through it. You get it. And what about, and, and how do you, how do you communicate, you got 14 employees plus 400 stations, the stations you probably don't have to communicate with as much, but how do you... No, we
1: communicate with them all Well, the that's true, you
0: get 50,000 times <laughs> a second, a lot more, so that's, that's a few uh, data points each year. Um, So yeah, so with your um, human employees, uh, how do you communicate, like do you have weekly meetings or how do you kind of, like you said, one of the main things of that vision, like how do you kind of keep?
1: Yeah, I mean, having a remote workforce is is definitely, um, you know, difficult from a communication standpoint, but using tools like Slack, where you can uh, constantly be connected and then having uh, a structure that allows you to have routine meetings that um, make sure that you have those touch points where um, information is being shared and one of the things we try to do at understory is that all of our departments um, have some remote component to them so there's no yeah. one department that sits in Madison so that there's no islands or anything so yeah. there's always some remote component to any one of our departments so that everyone is forced to communicate on the platform um, together so that um, there's no group that's just kind of you know working, uh, with themselves and then rarely sharing information yeah. with the rest of the company.
0: And how's it being headquartered in Madison? I, I, is it easier? To, this is kind of a general question and probably depends upon who you're looking for at the time, but is it easier to recruit people in than or Boston? Because Boston has a huge number of companies and startups, but they have a huge number of colleges too, whereas Madison has UW. <laughs> right. Um. <laughs>
1: I mean, so yeah, recruiting people here again—it depends on um, you know, what you're looking for. But it's you know, hiring uh, hardware engineers, mechanical engineers, or electrical engineers um, is you know, great. There's there's a lot of talent okay. here right. for that. Uh, software engineers, despite what everyone says, there's a lot of great software engineers here. Um, and then there's just you know, there's a lot of people that you um, you know wouldn't expect to find here because they you know really like the the culture of being in Madison or being in Wisconsin and. Um, the fact that your dollar goes a lot farther here than it would in San Francisco or Boston uh, is incredibly compelling once you forget about that whole winter thing. but um, So that's been helpful. I mean there's some areas in, in Madison that could do a lot better uh, where it's in um, UI design or, or front end you know there's a lot of that that's missing uh, in this area but you know for the most part you know we're, we're able to have um, you know a lot of great people in this area and being a a company that's here, you know, having the ability to hire remotely, I feel like is incredibly uh, important. And just because a lot of you're actually seeing this, uh, even in the, um, you know, the valley that a lot of companies are hiring remote, even there, because they're finding that the best talent isn't always where your company is. And so being able to hire those people where they are, um, you know, can really help you hire the best possible people and make your company as flexible as possible. So that by having, um, you know, a small workforce, you can do some pretty incredible things because every single person on your team
0: is an absolute a player. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And uh, so, let's see, three more questions. Two of them are f- pretty quick, and then uh, we'll be done. Um, so, what, what's uh, one thing that you would have maybe done differently through this entire? Path. There's probably many things, but you know, we're always trying to see if you can uh, prevent somebody from doing something crazy that you did. First. <laughs> I mean, the
1: thing that's that's probably the hardest is um, is being able to hire quickly and also fire quickly mm-hmm. at the same time, because there's always that point where um, you might have someone at the company that um, you know is is doing well, but you know. It, it they're not a good fit for the company yeah. and you you want them to be able to continue to do well, but at some point it creates a negative effect and so you never feel like you've fired someone fast enough, mm-hmm. which sounds like a, a heavy message I guess they have' <laughs> on here but um but that's you know having that and it's really hard you know it constantly continues to be hard and so um but that would be kind of like the the best nugget of advice mm-hmm. um that I would have just come kind of from a hard like uh perspective
0: yeah yes the the hard thing hard the heart the things about heart things well is yeah was yeah little... that one book yeah, yeah I, <laughs> that one book. That's, I can never remember the title all right um yes so yeah two more questions this is more about personal because you know just curious uh what do you like to do in your uh, free time if you're
1: so my wife and I just had a baby three months ago uh, so that's hey, Congrats. that's your free time, free time. <laughs> yeah uh, and that's been awesome so
0: nice all right that'll keep you busy yeah um that's cool and uh, what's your favorite Madison restaurant or one of them or you can say um, multiple or you can say you don't like food no <laughs> food's, food's awesome uh, food's awesome <laughs>
1: no the uh, I really like just as like kind of a, an easy pub to go to uh, Jordan's Big Ten is awesome oh nice that? good, All right. good one with a hidden gen, gem over there in region I guess you
0: know. a friend who loves that place oh, it is a nice place so, alright that's a good way and it, and Even outside of game days, they will go. Even outside of game all days, well, it's even better? It's yeah, better outside. It's, yeah. Outside of game days, it's kind of ridiculous. But. all right, well, I think we're about out of time, unfortunately. But uh, Alex, we really appreciate you coming on our podcast. And yeah, thanks it's a lot. Awesome. It's, it's, it's definitely gonna have to advertise this to weather geeks because it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's what you're what you're getting. Uh, what the data you're getting is uh, pretty interesting to the yeah, weather world. And I,
1: and I would say this one one last plug is yeah. that. Um, you can go to our website, understoryweather.com, and actually access uh, our real-time data for free. So if you're a weather geek and just want to really? see what we're doing, you can create an account and you know putz around wow. and actually look at what data the weather stations are are pumping out
0: um, in our five different cities. Wow. That's awesome. All right. You should, uh, you should tell weather.com you are doing. Have some type of. Anyways, I was guessing like. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of Flower Labs. As always, I definitely appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you next time. And, Alex, thanks again. Thanks a lot. Have a good day, everyone.